Okay, national travel restrictions there are being suggested by Premier John Horgan. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Michael Bryant. He is the Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Michael, thanks for coming on. Good to be on. Okay, Michael, we've got a thing in our country called the Constitution and mobility rights, right? Like people are allowed to move around the country freely. Are you concerned about this talk of national restrictions? Yeah, I am. Uh, The Section 6 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees mobility rights. Uh, In Newfoundland, they put in a travel ban, so we went to court. Uh, there we won uh, and lost. Uh, the and we're and we're appealing it. The the, the court recognized that uh, if a government uh, stops a Canadian from coming into their province, that does violate their mobility rights. Uh, but they said that it, it it was a limit that was uh, justified in the case of Newfoundland uh, based on the evidence, and uh, that's what we're appealing to the Newfoundland court. So. Uh, the province has to uh, do it in a way that doesn't violate mobility rights. And amongst other things, you have to justify why this is necessary. And so my question is, are the provincial quarantines not working? And even more importantly, is there really a mass refugee problem in British Columbia? I mean, do you really have that many people coming into the province that it's necessary to put this in place or is we, got, this just, we got a lot of snowbirds uh, we got a lot of snowbirds coming out here michael because they can't go down to arizona anymore so they're coming out to bc instead i mean you got the national well, snowbird when, association when, advertising right. come on out when when you say a lot i i want you know we're talking about epidemiology what are right. these numbers right. and and in fact do we have any evidence that everybody arriving is carrying covid with them uh, and, uh, of course, we don't have that evidence. And if they're coming out, then presumably they have to quarantine under your rules. The point is, our argument is this is based on fear, not science. And uh, and so we'd, we'd like them to show us the evidence that would uh, back up what this plan is. Okay, my guest is Michael Bryant. He's the head of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I mean, isn't the evidence sort of staring us right in the face here, Michael? I mean, the, the numbers are going through the roof, and we were setting a new COVID record every single day here in British well, Columbia. Okay, it's an does emergency. That, does that mean that we should lock everybody up because the numbers are going through the roof? No, you've got to put into place some measures that are going to do something about it and are proportionate to people's rights. Uh, if you're going to say the numbers are going up and therefore they can do whatever they want, then you got to throw the Constitution out. But in fact, you can't throw the Constitution out. It, it, it applies. And under our Constitution, uh, what, what's done when it violates people's rights, and this does violate Canadians' rights, is it's yeah. got to be proportionate and it's got to be necessary. Like this particular effort needs to be necessary. So why do we have to stop people at the borders? Are, is there any evidence that the provincial quarantines are not working, and in fact, we don't have that evidence. Right. What's going on with the Atlantic bubble? I mean, we've heard about the restrictions in Atlantic Canada, and you mentioned that the Canadian Civil Liberties Association had been involved in, in challenging some of those. So what are the rules right now in Atlantic Canada around travel? Uh, they put in travel bans uh, in all those provinces. So if you're from Nova Scotia, you can't go to Newfoundland. Uh, in, in, in that case, our co-applicant, her mom died, so she wanted to go to the funeral they said, you can't come. She said, look, I'll quarantine. They said, you can't come. You're not a resident in this province. Wow. Uh, similarly, there's a bunch of kids who were just on the other side of a bridge uh, in New Brunswick. They're on the Quebec side. They had been going to high school there. The New, New Brunswick said, no, kids, you can't come to school. 
So uh, these, uh, but again, there's no evidence that in fact that measure is going to prevent a single case of COVID. And that's our concern with it. It's just governments overdoing it or trying to look like they're doing something in circumstances when right now, you know, they haven't got a solution other than a vaccine. Right. What about the state of emergency? We're living under a state of emergency here declared by the government in British Columbia, and there's certainly other states of emergency declared elsewhere in the country. Does that make a difference? Like, does that override the constitutional mobility rights that Canadians enjoy in our country when it's an emergency? Well, again, it is an emergency, uh, but it's not an emergency that justifies the violation of everybody's rights. It's certainly, obviously, relevant. Uh, it's certainly exactly why they're bringing in some of these measures. The, the issue is, is this particular measure proportionate and necessary? And our argument is not. And, you know, I'd say that in the context where, uh, you know, if you look at the B.C. numbers uh, per capita and you compare it to the rest of the country, uh, you know, the, the trend that's happening in B.C. is happening, you know, across Canada Right. And the numbers in Ontario where I'm at, I'm from B.C. originally, but the numbers in Ontario where I'm at are per capita much, much higher than what's taking place in B.C. The political challenge is if you're going to put in a travel ban in Atlanta, Canada, I understand politically why the B.C. premier might say, well, I guess I should, too. If uh, British Columbians can't go to P.E.I., then people from P.E.I. shouldn't be able to come to B.C. But that's just, you know, Old Testament eye for an eye stuff. You know, that that that's not good government, and it's certainly not consistent with the Constitution. Okay. okay, if Horgan says he wants to sit down and talk to Trudeau about this, about some kind of national crackdown on travel, if the government does go there, if Trudeau does go there and something like this, would the Canadian Civil Liberties Association be back in court challenging it? Yes. No. My guest is Michael Bryant. He is the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. He's worried about this talk. He uh, points out Canadians have the right to move around the country. It's called mobility rights under our Constitution. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. Jennifer in Port Moody. Hi. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. What would you like to say? Oh, thanks for having me. Um, no, I, I support a travel ban. I think that we need to look at other democratic countries who are way ahead of us. Um, in particular, you can look at Melbourne, Australia, that is now moving ahead with their economy. They had severe lockdowns. Adelaide is now having to do the same thing. And New Zealand's also a good example. I mean, we're taking a lot of half measures in this country that's not leading to anything but increased numbers. And our economy is never going to be able to get out of this unless we do something drastic and cut these numbers down substantially and then do intensive testing so that you can isolate cases. So that's all I have to say. Okay. And okay. Jennifer, thank you very much for the call. Michael Bryan, what do you think? Uh, well, the, um, the Australia example, uh, it, it doesn't quite apply here in this sense, uh, you know, uh, Canada does have restrictions in terms of um, people who aren't Canadians coming into Canada, but that's not what that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about restricting uh, our own citizens from being able to go to different parts of the country. Australia doesn't have a, a, a system like ours. They don't have two levels of government, so it's it, it's not really it's not really a comparison. In the United States would be a comparison, but they're not doing this. There's no interstate restrictions 
uh, in the United States. If, if you live in Arkansas, you can go to Mississippi. But again, I just want to reiterate, uh, actually, if you're concerned about the, const- about the economy, and, and of course, one, one, it makes sense that one would be, uh, restricting interprovincial travel is is not going to improve the economy. I mean, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, you know, if you tell well, you people would, that they you can't would, come home, you would just restrict non-essential travel, though, right? I mean, essential travel would still continue. Presumably, supply lines would continue across the country. Uh, presumably, but uh, yeah. what uh, what tends to happen is that the you know government writes uh, these restrictions in a particular way, and then there's always unintended consequences. So you you know. How you're going to implement this is, you know, provinces for the first time in our history are going to be, uh, if if this goes ahead, I guess, setting up border patrols. And, you know, the provinces have no experience with this. They've never had to manage borders before. The feds have experience with borders, but the province don't. And so you're going to get a group of people who have never been involved in interprovincial travel restrictions, applying it. And um, I can pretty much guarantee that it will have a a negative impact on the economy, not only at the time in which it's in place, but, you know, you're going to have a lot of tourists who are not going to forget for a long time uh, that a particular province said, yeah, no, you're not welcome in our province, Um, which I think is going to happen certainly in eastern Canada. We'll see about B.C. Take some more calls here. Sean on the line in North Van. Hi, Sean. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, as a police officer, I'm, I'm quite interested in any issues around human rights, and, and that's one of the big reasons I became a police officer. And I'm just a couple of points. I'm curious as to why the BC Civil Liberties Association and other groups that profess to, to um, value rights under the Charter, why they think that um, this right, for example, is going to... Um, uh, get under the radar of the government. The government's going to say it's a reasonable limitation, and, and I'm curious right. as to why they say mm. it's not. When other rights, let's say Section 7, which has been described as the heart of the Charter, life, liberty, and security person, you never hear any groups uh, trying to defend a woman's right to choose or not to keep herself safe. I'm just curious why that is. Okay, Michael. Sure. Uh, firstly, you mentioned BCCLA. It's actually a different organization than CCLA, but in any event, um, uh, we're putting out a joint release, CCLA and BCCLA, on the subject of mobility rights later on today. But um, in fact, we are, uh, sir, in New Brunswick right now fighting for women's right to choose because uh, of the lack of access to abortion in that province and those section seven rights were in court in the city of toronto fighting for the section seven rights of uh the homeless who were having their liberty restricted um and not protected through appropriate uh, shelter protection so all those rights are important uh you know we we don't have a hierarchy in our constitution where we say some some constitutional rights are more important than others that's not how the system is set up and you know i appreciate uh, your question about uh, all human rights. The answer is, so wh- why do we think this would fly under the radar? You know, I, I think the answer is we'd like to hear from the Attorney General of BC and allow him to make the case for why this would be, in fact, constitutional uh, under our Charter of Rights okay. and Freedoms and provide us with the evidence to do that. Okay, so squeeze in one more call. We only got one minute left, though. Susan in North Van. Susan, you got to go quick, okay? Okay, quickly. Uh, I believe that um, uh, public health care rights should supersede anything. 
And this is a pandemic. We haven't had one in 100 years. And all travel should be stopped. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. And I think to feel otherwise is very selfish. Okay. We should do whatever we can to protect everyone. Australia did it. New Zealand did it. China did it. Taiwan is doing well. Okay, thank, we you, for the, thank well. you for the call. Sorry to step on you. They're out of time. 20 seconds, Michael, if you want to sum up. Yeah, there's no doubt that this is popular. That, I mean, that's why the Premier is doing it. The people will like this. But, you know, the, our job is to stand up for people's constitutional rights, even when it's unpopular. Uh, it's just uh, actually the height of selfishness to try and stop people uh, across Canada from being able to go to different parts of the, of the country just because you're afraid that they're carrying COVID, when in fact there's no evidence of it. That, that violates our constitution. That's why we're going to fight it. Okay, it's a fascinating issue. Thank you for coming on today. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's turn our gaze south of the border now. The continuing drama in the aftermath of the U.S. election. President-elect Joe Biden busy working on his transition plans to assume power at the White House. World leaders from countries around the world have sent their congratulations to Biden, including Canada, of course. But Donald Trump continuing to insist the election was a fraud. It was a setup. It was rigged. He has unleashed his lawyers. They are fighting the election results in court. Basically getting nowhere, but he's still fighting, refusing to concede the election to Joe Biden. All right, let's talk about all this now with my guest, David Frum, American political commentator and analyst, a former speechwriter for U.S. President George W. Bush. His work appears in the Atlantic Magazine and many other places. His new book is Trump Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. David, thanks a lot for coming on again. Such a pleasure to return. Okay, David, I'm taking a look at Trump's Twitter feed this morning. So he's tweeting up a storm again, saying that we're going to overturn this election. He's going to win in court. What is this guy up to here? Because we all know he's not, he's, this is not going to work. He's not going to overturn the election results. Why is he doing this? Well, as so often, Trump doesn't exactly have a plan. He's got a, a lot of impulses. And so he's acting on um, his inability to accept bad news, his, his lack of um, acceptance of the de- rules of the game in a democracy. But whatever he's got in mind, you can see that however comical and pathetic it all looks, it's having actually really dangerous results for the future of American democracy because he's teaching many people believe in him and a lot of people do not to accept defeat in an election. Okay, I wonder, though, if there's a, a method to his madness sometimes. Like, I'm wondering if maybe this is about money or trump looking for continuing influence after he leaves the white house we've heard about him setting up a political action committee called save america to raise money we hear you know maybe he'll start his own tv network Uh, he'll certainly write a personal memoir i guess and try to sell a lot of books i mean is that what's about this is about just keeping his base engaged so he can make make more money and have more influence later yeah for sure he wants to keep keep himself as leader of the republican party and not move on um, and continue to be a, a visible person and punish anyone who stands against him inside the Republican world. He does want money, as you say. He may also be trying to warn uh, Democratic politicians. If you're thinking of letting prosecutors investigate me for, say, not paying my taxes, um, think again, because look at this trouble I'm able to cause. If uh, there's any move to um, punish me for my years of tax evasion or other financial crimes, uh, I'll t- turn this country upside down. So don't do it. Leave me be. That may be also part of the scheme. Um, but uh, yeah. the question here is, why are people going along with this? I mean, we can yeah. all say things, right? I can say I'm the king of Siam. But yeah. the question is, do I find people to agree with me? And the danger is he is finding people who agree with him. 
Okay, well, there are certainly some prominent exceptions there, including including yourself uh, um, and, and many others in the Republican ranks here. But a lot of Republicans, like you said, David, kind of, I guess, kind of lining up with Trump a little bit. Let me play this here for you. This is uh, U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell, very senior Republican senator here, and talking here about saying that Trump's within his rights to fight the outcome of the election. Here's McConnell. In the United States of America, all legal ballots must be counted. Any illegal ballots must not be counted. The process should be transparent or observable by all sides, and the courts are here to work through concerns. Our institutions are actually built for this. We have the system in place to consider concerns, and President Trump is 100% within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options. Okay, that's uh, Mitch McConnell there speaking to David Frum. So, David, are, are some of these top Republicans, are they scared of Trump? They don't want to cross him publicly? Is that what's going on? They're, some of them are scared of them, and some of them relish the sabotage. I mean, this is going to put the Biden administration in, in, in many ways in a difficult position. Let me give you a very concrete example right now. Sure. Um, there's all this fantastic news about vaccine development, and it's so exciting and so welcome. But, you know, it's one thing to invent the vaccine, then you have to get it into the arms of hundreds of millions of people. So the distribution and rollout is a big challenge, and we should be starting that now. But, and, and obviously that's going to be the work of the Biden administration because the vaccine's not going to be available in large doses until January and, right. and after. So we should be planning now how we get the vaccine from the lab to the factory into people's arms. But the Trump people are refusing to communicate at all. Any information at all to the Biden people are going to have to distribute the vaccine. And so I think a lot of Americans are going to find themselves waiting three extra months to get a vaccine that they could have in, you know, February, March or April. They're going to be getting it in May, June, July unnecessarily because the Trump people are sabotaging the transition. Okay, the Republicans who support Trump or are still sticking with them will say, he still has with he's still within his right to challenge the outcome of the election, just like the Democrats did back in the year 2000, the, the, the Bush Gore recount in Florida. And you formally worked for George W. Bush. I know I know you had a front row seat to that process. I was what, there. Yeah. Yeah, you were there. So what, what is the difference? Look, you have a right to sue your neighbor in court for bombarding your house with invisible microwaves. You have a right to be a vexatious litigant. I mean, you know, we have, there are many, in a civilized society, you don't take every opportunity to be a litigious jerk that avails itself, makes itself available to you. In 2000, there was a really difficult dispute. And as someone who was on the Bush side, I I still don't know exactly what the right answer was. The whole thing came down to one state. It came down to a few hundred ballots in one state. Um, There are a lot of questions of like the semi-perforated hanging chads. Who was in the right? The Florida Supreme Court said Al Gore was right, and the U.S. Supreme Court said Bush was right. That's and, and, and some of the smartest lawyers in the United States were on Gore's side, and some of the smartest lawyers in the United States were on uh, Bush's side. This right. time, Trump hasn't won, I think, a single court case. He's got dozens, and he's, he's now, I think, at 28 lost cases. He has no case. There is yeah. no evidence. There are no illegal ballots. By the way, most of the observed cases of voter fraud are committed by pro-Trump voters, where people who basically... Um, People who have older parents and knew their parent wanted to vote for Trump. The parent had a ballot um, and had been made out, and the son or daughter brings the ballot and tries to cast it illegally. And there are a few of those cases. So that's when voter fraud happens. That's usually how it happens. It's somebody, an heir, a 
spouse or a child trying to honor a deceased person's dying wish. Sure. Um, sure. And there, there may be in any election, there may be uh, some dozens, maybe even a hundred cases like that across the whole United States. Right. But, uh, but he, Trump is just being a vexatious litigant, and he is thwarting the transition process. There is a law that says this process starts when we have an apparent winner, not a confirmed winner, but an apparent winner, and we do. Okay. Okay, I think it's pretty obvious that Trump is not going to succeed in, in in any measure here at all, but it's interesting to see how some prominent Republicans continue to sort of stand by him. Let me play another clip here for you, Dave, and get your, your thoughts and reaction. Lindsey Graham, of course, uh, very uh, solidly pro-Trump, standing with Trump in the election dispute. Here he is. Democracy depends upon fair elections. President Trump's team is going to have a chance to make a case regarding... Uh, voting irregularities. They deserve a chance to make that case. I'm going to stand with President Trump. If a Democrat were doing this, it'd be cheered on. And we're not going to let the media intimidate us into exploring whether or not this, these contests were fairly had. Okay, Senator Lindsey Graham there, slavishly devoted to Trump. Why, David? Why do these people stick so close to Trump? Um. It's a you know, fascinating question. I think different people have different reasons. In some cases, it's fear. Um, in some cases, as in McConnell's case, it's they see an opportunity to increase their own power by weakening the incoming administration without thinking yeah. about the consequences for democracy or the consequences for the spread of the vaccine. Right. Yeah. Undermine Biden, right? Like you want to undermine the guy who's coming in. Yeah, because if you can... If you can leave behind the idea that there's something, there's all this talk about illegal votes, and again, there are a few dozen, and most of them are Republican, as far as we've been able to prove. Um, all of this is an attempt to say, well, then when Biden says, I'd like to appoint some judges too, a Republican Senate can say, well, there's so much confusion over this election, which there isn't. Um, no judges for you. Okay, there's some people think maybe Trump is planning to run again. Maybe he's... Uh getting ready for 2024 and that's what this is all about keep his base engaged keep people doubting the election outcome because then he'll he'll try again he'll try to raise more money with this political action committee he's setting up and he'll run again in 2024 i don't know it just seems a little bit of a a bank shot for me but what do you think is that possible um it, it, it it's possible if he finds himself if, if he's not entangled with illegal difficulties but he may be on the way to uh, all kinds of criminal exposure because of the questions about his tax return and other kinds of uh, fi financial scandals and crimes. Yeah, it's such a weird time for America and for the Republican Party as well. I mean, it's difficult to see, even after Trump leaves, if Trumpism continues to be a very powerful force in, in the Republican Party. I'm curious, David, what, is it, what has it been like for you personally taking such a you know, kind of a high-profile, sustained position, critical of, of the president uh, as a guy who's been in the Republican Party in the past. I mean, have, have you lost, like, f do you lose friendships over this kind of stuff? Um, well, look, this is, a, a, this is a town that takes politics pretty seriously. And, uh, you know, we all make, um, we all make judgments, and, and there yeah. are consequences. But the, the real issue here is not for someone like me. It's, uh, it's that there are many Republican people who are holding non um, you know, non-supervisable jobs who are getting death threats. Secretaries of State, like the Secretary of State of Georgia, um, who is trying to do an honest job as a Republican, and he finds himself having to go into hiding and put his family under police protection. We saw this uh, happen with, with the certification of the vote in um, Wayne County, which is the area around Detroit and Michigan, yeah. um, where there are Republican commissioners 
who have been, you know, who hesitated, then eventually did the right thing, then both got calls from President Trump telling them to reverse themselves and um, wow. or, or else or else face consequences, including death threats. OK, David, from last question for you, I but Joe Biden will be the president of the United States. I think that's pretty clear. Is that a good you're a Canadian guy? Is that a good thing or a bad thing for Canada, 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 U.S. relations, a Biden presidency? Oh, well, it, it won't be problem free. Um, the Biden presidency will have tendencies toward protectionism, but yeah. it's going to be normal problems, not crazy problems. And I think everybody would rather have normal problems than crazy problems. David, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks. Let's talk a little uh, Canadian politics now. There's so much going on with the COVID-19 pandemic across the country. Uh, some breaking news there. You heard on your news with uh, Justin Trudeau announcing a new net zero emission plan for Canada to meet climate change targets. Uh, lots of talk about our unemployment rate in the country. You compare that to other G7 countries around the world. Uh, Canada doing not so hot in that regard. And also, what does Trudeau mean when he says it's time to reset the economy in the aftermath of COVID-19? Let's talk about all that with my guest now, Pierre Poiliev, federal conservative finance critic. He is the MP for Carleton. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. Great to be with you. Really appreciate your time. So let me ask you real quick about uh, just the breaking news we got at this hour with the Prime Minister announcing a net zero emission plan to meet climate change targets. Is this uh, any kind of a surprise to you or do you have any concerns about the plan? Well, it's once again um, lofty rhetoric, big promises, no practical idea of how he would achieve any of this. Let me give you one example of how insane his rhetoric has been on the issues of energy and in the environment. He says he wants to phase out Canada's oil and gas. That would eliminate 10% of our economy. The COVID recession has been equal to about 7% of our economy. The difference is that the COVID recession is temporary. Presumably when COVID is behind us, we'll recover that economic output. Eliminating the oil and gas sector would permanently eliminate 10% of our economy. It'd be like having a COVID recession every year forever. Uh, And that would mean hundreds of thousands of middle-class working families would be forced to go on welfare and draw from the system, bankrupting our government and leaving them in poverty. He has absolutely no practical idea of how to combat uh, that problem. So, uh, you know, he once again is pie-in-the-sky, lofty promises to, quote-unquote, reimagine our country when right, right now what people really want is a practical plan to get safely back to work. Right, right. When he said, uh, as I recall, I remember when he said he, he, he would like to phase out the oil sands or we need to phase out the oil sands, and then he said later that he had misspoke about that, and he was really talking about, well, you know, maybe 100 years from now, we won't need oil and gas. But, I mean, what, what has he specifically said about the oil and gas industry in Canada in the short term? Well, first of all, he has said he would phase it out, and then he went to France and gave a prepared speech with a text that was written and before his eyes and said that he wanted to transition uh, away uh, Alberta's oil sands out of existence. Uh, and uh, he has done everything in his power to achieve that. He, he vetoed the Northern Gateway Pipeline, which would have allowed us to deliver our oil to the uh, Pacific Coast so that we could sell it to 
billions of customers in Asia. He blocked the Energy East pipeline, which would have taken Western oil to Eastern Canadian refineries. Now, because he blocked that pipeline, we have to import Saudi and Algerian oil through tankers that come across the Atlantic uh, and uh, give our Western oil to the Americans at $20 a barrel discounts. Uh, he has imposed a job-killing carbon tax on the manufacturing and energy sectors. Uh, he is uh, he firmly of the view that he can just shut down manufacturing and oil and gas and replace it with these uh, uh, fantasies of new industries that don't exist yeah. and c- cannot exist without massive taxpayer-funded subsidies. Where are we at right now in our economy uh, at the moment? When you take a look at the unemployment rate, for example, and compare it to other OECD countries or G7 countries, where, where, where is Canada stacking up here? We're the second worst in the G7. So the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, Germany, and France all have lower unemployment than Canada. Only socialist Italy has higher unemployment than Canada, and not by much. Uh, we also have the single biggest deficit in the G20. Uh, that's 20 the 20 developed countries, the most developed countries of the world. We have the highest deficit at 17% of GDP. Uh, a new report just came out today in the Financial Post showing that Canada's total debt uh, has grown, and I'm talking public and private, and it's governments, households, and businesses, has grown by the equivalent of 80% of our GDP. Again, by far the highest of any peer peer group nation. And remember, all those other countries are facing COVID as well. Uh, We are headed towards a debt crisis unless we make a sharp adjustment to get our economy producing again and our government living within its means. Right. Speaking of federal conservative finance critic Pierre Poliev, I mean, well, when the conservatives were in power, of course, there were the debt rose as well. But I'm, I'm just wondering about the, the COVID response measures that the government brought in that dramatically increased the deficits we're looking at. When all that money was going out the door, I mean, I don't. Rec- the conservatives were not saying, wait a second, don't spend that money. I mean, if anything, I mean, weren't the conservatives saying we should be spending even more? No, uh, not at all. We supported the wage subsidy, the CERB, and the small business loans, all of which made sense that we had to replace the incomes that governments had prevented people from earning themselves. Those three programs add up to about $180 billion. The deficit is $380 billion. In other words, there's another $200 billion beyond those three programs that was largely unnecessary. Um, furthermore, uh, we would have um, a, a lot, for example, approved $20 billion worth of privately funded energy projects that still await federal approval. Uh, we would have removed the penalties the government imposed on CERB recipients who went back to work and earned more than $1,000 so that we could get more people into jobs rather than right. forcing them with financial penalties to stay home. Those are the differences uh, in the approach that we would have taken versus the current government's approach. Okay, let me ask you about this reset thing here now. So let me play this clip for you. This is uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in a address to the United Nations. And listen very clearly here to this word that he uses. He wants to reset, an opportunity to reset the economy. Here's Trudeau. Building back better 
means getting support to the most vulnerable while maintaining our momentum on reaching the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the SDGs. Canada is here to listen and to help. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. Okay, this word that he uses there, an opportunity for a reset of the economy, Pierre Proliev, getting a lot of attention. You've launched an online petition to stop the Great Reset. What, what is this about? For people who haven't followed this and what this reset thing is here, what is your concern? Well, the Prime Minister is taking advantage of people's desperation to impose his ideological fantasies on our economy. Now is not the time to reimagine our economic system. Now is the time to safely get people back into their jobs. Uh, is you know he he seems to be suggesting that now is his opportunity to delete whole industries like oil and gas and manufacturing, who he for which he's called for the abolition in prior comments, and replace them with uh, fantasy industries that don't exist and would require massive government subsidies paid out of taxpayer pocket to get up on their feet. Uh, isn't now the time to focus on the basics? of getting people safely back into their jobs, jobs that they had only uh, six or seven months ago, uh, to uh, earn incomes, pay taxes, and contribute to their communities. Now is exactly the wrong time to, to use the Canadian economy as a laboratory or a guinea pig to play out the um, experiments of international financial elites like the Prime Minister. Okay, you seem to be kind of piggybacking a little bit on this uh, Klaus Schwab, uh, the founder of the World Economic Forum, and this Great Reset idea. He wrote a book about it. The, the World Economic Forum has actually got a website about the, the Great Reset and this opportunity to somehow have some sort of new economic initiatives in the aftermath of, of this pandemic. But like, you know, when you take a look at that and you hear the prime minister kind of using the same words there, your concerns are what? That this is some sort of move to a more socialist system? Well, of course it is. Uh, the uh, international financial elite uh, loves socialist politics because it allows them and the, the governments they influence to have more control. Uh, they have uh, long called for massive expansions of government. Uh, because it, it enriches them at the expense of working-class taxpayers. It allows them to control the economic destinies of uh, tens of millions of people. Uh, and uh, that's exactly why we should oppose everything about this uh, crazy scheme. Okay, but that, that includes the World Economic Forum? You think they're part of that? Well, they're, they're, I don't think that. You just, uh, I quote, you, you just quoted... Uh, the uh, the website they have, they have yeah. a website called uh, the Great Re- Reset. It's but not Stephen, me I, alleging like, it. Like I remember when Stephen Harper used to go to their their events, right? So I mean, like, what is the World Economic <clears throat> Forum turned into some sort of stalking horse for world socialism or something? Like they they, they do uh, the, the, the they are a group of international financial elites who uh, favor uh, socialist left wing ideas. And uh, Justin Trudeau believes that he can reimagine Canada in their image. And that's not surprising if you're uh, a multimillionaire prime minister who stuffed his money in a trust fund so he didn't have to pay the full tax burden on it. 
and uh, you've never had to work a day in your life. You've taken illegal $200,000 vacations from people asking government grants from you. Uh, it's no wonder that you'd be attracted to these kinds of schemes. Um, you're totally out of touch with the real world. But ordinary, hardworking folks who pack their pack a lunch and put on their boots and go to work in the morning will, uh, don't want to pay for it. They want their jobs and their lives back. We should be fighting for them rather than sucking up to international elites uh, and uh, talking about reimagining our entire economy. How many, how many uh, signatures do you have on your pet, uh, petition right now against the, the reset? 60,000. Wow. Okay. What, what do you say so, to people who push back and say, oh, you know, Pierre Poliev is, is playing into some sort of online conspiracy theory. This is like New World Order stuff, and it's just a conspiracy but you just told me that it's on the World Economic Forum website. You it just is. quoted yeah. the, you just quoted the prime minister saying it. So, right, I know, I know. But then you, but people also say like, oh, it's some sort of. This is when you when you rail against it, you're playing into some sort of conspiracy theory. Like, what do you? It's say right to there. Yeah, I know. It's right there. You quoted the prime minister. Yeah. You quoted the World Economic Forum website. It's right there. Yeah. I encourage people to go look at it themselves. I've tweeted out the links to the World Economic Forum. Uh, I've tweeted out excerpts from the paper the forum published on this great uh, reset and on the re quote Trudeau's reimagination of the economy. Uh, it's all publicly available information that I'm citing. So go to my website with Pierre.ca with Pierre.ca and sign my petition if you oppose this um, this crazy scheme and you want to get safely back to work and get our economy back on its feet. Okay, it's fascinating stuff. Thanks a lot for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Great to be with you. Okay, that is Pierre Poliev. He is the federal conservative finance critic. All right, welcome back to the show. Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix will be meeting with the media again today at 3 p.m. for an update on COVID-19 numbers in the province. We know that schools have been a hot zone for COVID-19 exposures. For more on that, our show contributor John Jang joins us now for an update. Hey, good morning, Mike. Uh, we're just a few hours away from hearing from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix regarding the new COVID-19 updates for today. And also, we're assuming there's going to be some sort of a major announcement. We're not exactly sure what the details of those announcements are going to be, but it does seem to be a little different today. So we'll be tuned for that at around 3 o'clock this afternoon. Now, in the meantime, I'm going to be reconnecting here with Kathy Marlis. She is the creator and the administrator of the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook group, which which now has over 35,000 people following it, one of the most convenient resources for parents who are just looking for information and clarity on COVID-19 exposures in schools here in BC. Kathy, it's been a few days since we last really connected. Uh, as I like to ask you when we get a chance to talk, I just want to know how things have gone for you over the past number of days and how many exposure notices you've received from parents. It continues to get busier and busier and busier, and uh, it, it gets quite overwhelming, actually. We got 38 exposure notices uh, yesterday that we had to report on, so we were scrambling to get that data all entered into our list and uh, get it to the families following and the teachers, so it's, it was intense. It doesn't seem to be a coincidence that you're getting more exposure notices, as we've also heard uh, record-breaking COVID-19 exposure rates uh, from Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry over the past week. I mean, that just seems to be very much linked together. De definitely. There's definitely a correlation. I mean, uh, Dr. Henry has said it's, uh, 
you know, it will reflect what's going on in the community will um, snowball, you know, and reflect in the schools. And, and that's obviously true. We're seeing it increase everywhere. So it's, um, I think, the part that I find frustrating when there's a lot of talk about, well, there's very low transmission in schools and that kids and, you know, are not getting it or catching it at school. And to me, it feels like, well, of course, it's coming from outside the school. COVID doesn't just magically materialize in the building. Um, it has to come from somewhere. So the the actual where it occurs and how it happens to me is it's kind of irrelevant. The point is that it's coming uh, into the building. And I feel like until that's sort of under control, um, our, our kids and teachers are continue to be at risk doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me as we clearly are seeing students are getting sick teachers are getting sick we we know that exposures are happening in schools and yet they're not directly linking that to transmission rates which i am a little skeptical about but regardless you know kathy what have you heard from parents over the past number of weeks who really need some answers from health leaders and government leaders and trying to do what's best here and maybe even talking about whether or not schools need to be closed I think it's a really mixed emotional piece. I think, you know, schools being uh, talked about being closed is on the table, but not in the sense that um, people want them to close. I think what parents really want is they want to know it's safe. Teachers want to feel safe. We hear from both. And I think measures need to be put in place. The plan needs to be tweaked in order to know that it's safe to continue going because to constantly get these exposure notices. Some schools are on their 11th letter. So they're feeling like how, how this emotional upheaval every time the letter comes in, it's not safe. No one feels safe. So I think that they need to do either a, a major reset in the plan, if that involves temporarily closing so they can readjust or if it means reducing the class sizes right away and reducing the, the you know, the impact, um, mandating masks in the schools so that they know that that is a layer of protection, but they seem to keep saying that that layer of protection is not, for some reason, magically needed in the school building. In, in workplaces, in stores, in other public venues, they say, yes, masks are very important, but for some reason, there's a magic force field around the building of a school that makes these rules um, not apply, which everyone's just kind of scratching their heads still going, how does this make sense? And no matter what they do as an explanation, it, it just doesn't just doesn't play. We don't get it. We're expecting an announcement from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix later this afternoon, just as they make the announcement regarding the new COVID-19 numbers here in BC. We don't know what this announcement is going to be about, Kathy, but from the parents that you've spoken with over the past few weeks, what are some things that you would want to see and want to hear from Dr. Bonnie Henry, from Adrian Dix, and eventually Premier John Horgan. We really, really hope that they're going to discuss schools. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm not expecting um, anything, but we really hope that uh, they will say that you know more safety measures need to be put in place for schools, um, proper PPE equipment, um, available barriers in the classrooms. Uh, social distancing, enforced smaller class sizes, um, you know, offering hybrid remote learning options. So there's a lot of students who are very good self-directed learners, especially in the high schools, who could 
could stay home and would want to and their families are, are happy to have them home, wish they had those options that would automatically reduce the class sizes and have that available. So there's, there's a lot of things they can do. It seems pretty straightforward in that, and there's a lot of other places in the world that are taking action and are acknowledging that school transmission is happening, that they are a vector for spreading, and it just seems like BC just won't come to terms and admit that. And it's happening everywhere else, so we're feeling like, what makes BC so different? We're not different. The virus is the same and it's universal everywhere. It's affecting people the same everywhere. BC doesn't, is not so special in that regard. So we really hope they can just validate and acknowledge that this is happening. And we won't say we told you so. We just want to be safe. It's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to fix them. So please, please, we implore them to fix them. She is Kathy Marlis, the creator and the administrator of the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook group. Kathy, always appreciate you giving us some time here and giving us the latest on how parents are feeling and what they're thinking over the past number of days. Thank you. Oh, thanks, John. Always a pleasure. Hopefully we won't have to do this so often anymore. All right. That was our own John Jang there in conversation with Kathy Marlis. She is the creator and administrator of the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook page, gaining followers by the day here, uh, like 40,000 followers of this Facebook page. If you got kids in public school like I do, I think this is a really interesting uh, Facebook page to follow, uh, which I have done as well. And what I like about it is just kind of a neutral, sort of straight-up listing, kind of clearinghouse of information about where COVID exposures have happened in public schools. So they've got almost 400 schools affected there with COVID exposures. they got a very clear, clearly laid out list. It's a good resource, I think, for parents. Now, you heard her raise some of her concerns around COVID-19 in schools. Here's what we'll do right now. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk more about this issue. Do you think schools should close early for the holidays? I wonder if that's where we're heading here in British Columbia, maybe an early Christmas break to shut the schools down with COVID on the rise. Would you support something like that? Do you feel safe sending your kids to school right now? I'd love to hear from you if you're a parent with kids in public school. Maybe you work in the school system. You're a teacher or a support worker. I would love to hear from you as well. So let's open the phone lines right now on COVID in schools. 604 604- 280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Toll free on your cell. It is star 9898. This is Mike Smith. Back with your calls 